Welcome to this week's Investor Podcast. Um, this is Gavin Ralston, and our guest this week is Phil Chandler. As usual, we're timing our conversations with multi-asset experts to follow on from the recently held GAC Global Asset Allocation Committee meetings. By way of introduction, many of the conversations we've had in these podcasts since December have focused on the power of central banks to move markets. And last week truly was a central bank week par excellence. Uh, I think I'm right in saying that all the world's major central banks made statements that were more dovish than expected. Uh, It seems that central bankers are uniformly gloomy about growth and relaxed about inflation. In Europe, we heard from Mr. Draghi uh, in Sintra talking about further monetary easing in Europe by a number of different means. Uh, The language of the statement from the Fed in the US was also dovish, uh, but there was no rate cut this time, and it prompted a sharp rebuke from President Trump, who accused the Fed of behaving like a stubborn child. Nonetheless, markets are still anticipating three rate cuts in the US this year, starting in July. As a result of all this, global bond yields are virtually in free fall, and a record amount of bonds, now I think $12.5 trillion, are trading on negative yields. US 10 yields, uh, 10 year yields today are trading at about 2%. Uh, in Germany, the 10 year yield is minus 0.32%. Even in Italy, the 10 year bond yield is at 2%. So equity markets have also uh, responded positively to this. Uh, Last week was the biggest week for flows into equity funds across the industry since March, and the S&P 500 is back to an all-time high. This means that the index has recovered all the ground it lost in the week patch in May. Within equities, uh, it's worth highlighting that low beta defensive stocks continue to make the running at the expense of cyclicals. And this was all despite Iran shooting down a US drone over the Persian Gulf and further sanctions being placed by the US and Iran, which partly explain why gold made a sharp recovery. Even Bitcoin has been rising and is up about 40% in the last month. So Phil, how do you explain the fact that equities are at all-time highs and bond yields are at very low points? How do you reconcile these two uh, phenomena? Well, as you said, I think the thing that's been driving markets over the last six months has been that central bank liquidity. And that's obviously benefited equities in terms of multiples, and it's brought bond yields down. And you can really see it with things such as Bitcoin, as you mentioned there. There's liquidity in the global economy and financial markets, and it's just seeping into wherever it can find opportunities. So that's the big driver. And from a fundamental perspective, I'd say you know nothing's really changed dramatically in recent months, because that liquidity driver is still there, and it's the main thing that's um, moving financial markets. On the flip side, you know, under the under sort of under the surface of the economy, you know, growth continues to disappoint, particularly outside of the US. We're not getting that cyclical pickup that we might want. I think the area that has changed in recent months is some of the hedges that we have on portfolios have started to become more expensive. So, for example, you talked about bond yields falling to record levels of negative yielding bonds or low levels. Duration is a very expensive hedge for portfolios now. Having added to duration in portfolios last year and again in the spring of this year, we're now in the process of booking profits and looking elsewhere. So where are you now looking for defensive hedges? So a number of areas. Mm -hmm. So for example, gold is an obvious one, Mm -hmm. uh, benefiting from um, liquidity in the system, uh, benefiting from the Fed easing, but also from some geopolitical risks. Within equities, looking at things such as low volatility equities or min vol equities as a replacement for broader equities. 
Um, also some of those more defensive sectors that have done very well. So trying to sort of move around where we're taking those hedges as opposed to sitting on the ones that have become expensive. So give us a flavour of the discussions that took place in the GAC meeting 10 days ago. So I think the real question here is, you know, is this uh, a genuine long-term slowdown? Is this just a small cyclical blip? Mm. The timing of that, can we have another positive cycle here? Um, is the Fed just uh, embarking on some insurance rate cuts or is this going to be a much longer cycle than that? Is there something serious going on? And I think we're waiting for data on that one. It's clear that growth has been disappointing. Yes, we had a rebound in the first quarter of this year after a poor second half of last year. But a large part of that was inventory-led. We're not really seeing a pickup in uh, global capex investment by companies. Um, and so whilst things such as consumer confidence remain okay, that manufacturing sector still remains worrisome. Which and is you a can point see that Philippe brought out. From exactly. And you can see week. that in terms of PMIs, for <coughs> example, in the US continuing to trend lower, although there's a pickup in new orders last week. So it, um, it real sort of focus there on what we think is going to happen and how this global zone starts to play out. And I think from that, it would then work out the real sort of implications for markets. But it sounds like you're coming close to saying that it almost doesn't matter how weak growth becomes because of the liquidity being provided by central banks. I think you're in, the difficulty there is that uh, if you look at the equity market, there are times when bad data is taken to be good data because it cements the idea that the Fed will be easing policy. We all know, though, that you get to the point where data can become too bad. If we go into a recession, then there's a limit to what um, uh, sort of pure liquidity easing alone can do. Yes, you can support uh, multiples, but ultimately earnings are going to suffer quite significantly, potentially. Um, that's not something we're calling for, but in an extremist, that was what, what, what would happen. So at that point, bad news does genuinely become bad news. So can you put a number on your exposure to equity markets within multi-asset, taking DGF as the flagship portfolio? Yeah, of course. So if you look at DGF, if I think big picture, we were sort of in the mid-40s in terms of equity weights last year. Uh, brought that down um, ahead of and during the volatility in Q4. Uh, increased again this spring, but now once again we've been reducing once again, and we're down to uh, around about 36-ish percent in terms of equities. The thing I'd say though is that doesn't tell the full story because on the flip side we've been doing things such as buying high yield. So as you know, we've been favouring carry as a way of, de of driving return or delivering returns for clients as opposed to just equity beta. And so high yield weights, for example, have doubled doubled from say six or seven percent up to maybe 12, 13, 14, 15 percent. And that obviously has some inherent beta within it. So that just looking at the pure equity weight doesn't tell you everything. And that distinction you're drawing between high yield bonds and equities, uh, you might think that high yield bonds were going to be affected by the, the strength or weakness of the corporate sector. Is it just a question of valuations being less extended in high yield that makes you more comfortable there? Well, I think there's a couple of things. Firstly, whilst there are some concerns about growth cyclically, at the moment, corporates seem to be fine in terms of their solvency. With interest rates as low as they are, it's relatively easy for companies to refinance debt. There isn't a significant wall of um, maturities to be refinanced. Uh, but what there is, is, is being refinanced okay. If you look, for example, at the high yield market, we saw a pickup in issuance last week, we're seeing it again this week, companies just taking advantage of very low interest rates and therefore they can continue operating for longer. So with default rates very low, that's therefore a positive for corporate bonds. 
And obviously with interest rates low in the rest of the world and falling even further, once again, that hunt for yield leads people to areas such as high yield debt. And, and does the hunt for yield also lead you to emerging markets debt? I ask that because we're seeing a huge interest in fixed maturity products, which are locking in uh, apparently high yields in emerging market securities. So we have had emerging market holdings in the past, um, last year, for example, beginning of this year. But at the moment, where we're looking on the EM side is more on the equity side and in some of the FX markets. So in addition to looking for carry in areas such as high yield, looking for carry in, in FX, and that has picked up some of those EM currencies. Um, so give, give us an example of currencies where you are seeing that high pick up. Uh, we, we run it actually as a, a broader basket as opposed to going into very okay. specific markets. Um, and then as, as I say on the equity side as well. So increasing exposure to emerging market equities, but trying to do it at the expense of areas such as say Europe, and therefore hedging some of that cyclicality or offsetting it. So this week, the focus moves from central banks to governments with a G20 meeting in Japan at the end of this week. What are markets anticipating? Is there anything that we should be looking out for in particular from those discussions? Well, I guess the first thing to say is, you know, the multi-asset sort of philosophy is very hard to call political events like this. So for us, it's more important to avoid getting too caught up in headlines and instead focus on what the risk events are and see if we can find hedges for them. So as I said, buying duration earlier this year, um, having some exposure to the yen, to gold, uh, to low volatility equities. I think that's a much much higher hit rate rather than just trying to call what Donald Trump is going to tweet overnight before he lands uh, for the G20 meeting. I'm not sure that investors have specific concrete expectations, if I'm honest, though. I think that if you look 10, 15 years ago, when there was much more international cooperation around the world, you had much clearer communiques coming out from the various different G bodies, the G7, the G10, the G20. I think that happens less now simply because there's a sort of rising nationalism and the strong difference of opinion as to how to deal with some issues such as the US-China trade war. Uh, Clearly very different opinions on both sides. So I think it's... Anyone hoping for a very clear, simple resolution seems unlikely. And I think after the shenanigans earlier this year, I would say that what the market really needs to see now is action, as opposed to just purely some words. Because we've had words before and it didn't come to anything. So it sounds like you're saying that even if there is no apparent resolution between the US and China, it won't necessarily undermine the the calmness that's prevailing in markets at the moment. No, I think the markets obviously clearly are looking to the G20, and I think that's I- impacting you know, market force at the moment. But at the same time, I don't think there's something you know, huge being priced in here, no. Okay. Let's talk a bit about the dollar, because one of the other features of last week was a, a marked weakening in the dollar within the narrow range in which it's traded this year. Uh, and that's obviously is anticipating a period of lower interest rates, more liquidity in the US and so on. Um, is that, do you think this is a trend that we'll see playing out in the second half of this year? I think it really comes down to a number of factors. The sort of uh, differential between interest rates between the US and the rest of the world is, is one. And clearly some of that dollar weakening we've seen has been driven by the Fed over-delivering in terms of rate cuts or expectations of rate cuts the market thought they might do. But the question now is what happens going forwards. And if you think about it, in an environment where um, the Fed was suddenly dramatically cutting rates, so these weren't just insurance cuts, but this was a, a true easing cycle, 
one presumes that global growth would be suffering quite significantly and therefore whilst the interest rate differential may be moving in the US dollars to the favor or against the US dollar and therefore the dollar will be falling at the same time that kind of risk off environment would be positive for the dollar so there are some arguments as to why the dollar maybe should sort of stabilize or weaken slightly but we're not calling for any significant moves here and indeed if you look at the dollar pattern over the course of this year you haven't really seen significant moves uh, we have stayed in a relatively narrow trading range and and what does that mean for your view on emerging markets equities because so so far this year you've been relatively constructive on both the US and emerging markets equities a weaker dollar is is obviously part of the the positive equation for emerging markets Yes, as I said earlier, I think we do like emerging markets and we have been starting to add to emerging markets on that valuation um, grounds um, and the hope that at least with the stabilisation of the dollar, if not, you know, hopefully it may weaken slightly, that would obviously be an even bigger boost to them. So uh, allocating into emerging markets, but as I say, the critical thing there is trying to avoid adding significantly to cyclicality and therefore with buying emerging markets. On the other side, we're doing things such as selling some of the more cyclical markets, Japan and Europe. Next week is obviously the first week in July and we start seeing signs of the earnings health of US companies. Is that something that concerns you? So if you, uh, the economics team for example, Keith's team, published some um, top-down estimates of earnings a couple of months ago and there they were actually suggesting that given uh, expectations for rising cost pressures amongst companies and the inability of them to pass it on to the end consumer, you may start to see margins coming under pressure. And in fact, if you look at the whole economy, you've seen that already. But looking at the S&P 500, that hasn't really occurred yet, but tends to happen with a lag, as you've seen in previous cycles. So from a top-down perspective, there's reason to believe that corporate earnings could start to come under pressure in the second half of this year. The question so this is, is, this is reflecting the fact that wage inflation has picked up a little in the US, but there's no sign yet of that flowing through into consumer price inflation. No, exactly. But then there are other things that are going on at the same time as well. So we know that with interest rate cuts, that's going to reduce cost of financing for some companies. Um, and therefore, that may start to offset some of the rising wage costs. So it's hard to tell. But top down, there are suggestions that earnings should start to come under pressure in the second half of this year. Whether that will happen from a bottom-up perspective, we're going to have to wait and see. Well, we're talking to Alex Tedder next week, so we'll get the views of an equity investor on precisely that issue. Yes, that'll be good to hear. Th there's, some commentators are a lot more bearish than you are, uh, starting off from the point of view that markets seem to be priced for perfection. Uh, and some people are beginning to call attention to excesses in areas like, for example, the leveraged loans market, which Michelle Russell Dow wrote about earlier this week. Uh, and the, the consequence of that view would be that markets might feel like where we were in 2007. It sounds like your view of the world is a lot more sanguine and you don't see the level of excess that would cause you to be much more concerned. We definitely do see excess. Uh, for example, if you look at uh, leverage within US corporates, then we're now above the highs that we had in 2002. So forget the 2007 highs, but above 2002, which is when you really had the, you know, if you think about it, the dot-com bubbles were about a corporate leverage episode as opposed to 2007-8, which is more of a household leverage episode. So clearly there are uh, problems in terms of rising leverage. Now part of that is about debt issuance. Part of that is about de-equitization of the market as companies have used cash to um, buy back shares and therefore reduce the buffer which they have in terms of equity capital. 
but at the same time it's been fine because of how low interest rates have been and therefore how affordable this has been to do but that is starting to change and you can see that in the numbers in terms of uh, payout ratios for example um, and how little wiggle room some companies have now to continue that cash flow to investors. Leverage loans is an area. People talk about student loans, people talk about autos. Individually, I'd say that none of them are big enough to you know, bring down uh, the global economy. They don't, I don't think, sum up to the total size of problems which we had in 2007-8, but there are some significant pockets there. At the moment, those areas have largely been fine owing to growth, employment growth, some mediocre wage gains, and that household income that's been rising has been enough to support the consumer, facilitate spending. And if you think about it, we've had spending on the, on the household side, even at a time when the savings rate has been relatively high. So there's a buffer for the households in a way you didn't have back in 2006, 2007, when the savings rate was negative. So there are some positives there, but at the same time, uh, we're all fully cognizant of the risks here. That after a 10-year um, expansion, there are question marks as to whether there is genuinely some pent-up demand. You know, companies, if you're going to invest, you will probably have done it already. For households, if you're going to borrow and spend and buy a new car, why would you not have done it already? So clearly, we, we do think that we are in the late stages of um, this cycle. But that doesn't mean it has to end imminently. We could have quite a long, prolonged late cycle potentially. The questions really are around the global growth, trade, Fed policy. Do you get a, a, um, a response from the economy to lower interest rates, for example? Yeah, because I think there's a bit of a fallacy that uh, business cycles are organic beings and have a natural uh, longevity which is now coming to an end but that's clearly a construct which you don't believe in. No uh, we don't and we've always said that. The one thing I would say though is that as a sort of trend, as a sort of underlying growth impetus around the world has started to reduce we use the analogy of being on a, on a wobbly bicycle. You know, if you think if you're cycling very quickly on a bike uh, the natural sort of um, centrifugal forces of the mm. wheels keep you upright and if you get a gust of wind from the side you're fine whereas if you're on a bicycle that's moving very slowly it starts to wobble and if you're on a bicycle that's stopped if you ever try and sit on a bicycle that's not moving and balancing it with your feet off the ground it's very tough and I think that the global economy is in a, a similar place today where the, the hurdle for an external shock to knock us off course is much lower today than it was a couple of years ago so the risks therefore clearly are rising and that's why if you look on our portfolios you can see the level of hedges going up and where we can't find hedges you see us taking risk off the table. So I'm not saying that we are in a wonderful happy world there's nothing to worry about far from it but where we do have these opportunities I think it's important that we deliver returns for clients. You know, Another uh, fr phrase that we have is that you should make hay whilst the sun shines where there are returns available, it makes sense to take advantage of them, to deliver those returns, and then it puts us in a much stronger position to reduce risk in the future. Whereas if you miss those opportunities in markets, you end up chasing markets to the wrong point, and that's where it becomes very difficult to reduce risk at the right point. So we shall continue to observe the world economy like a wobbly bike, yes. struggling against headwinds but keeping going. So on that note, um, thank you very much, Phil. We're out of time for this week. Just a couple of points that resonated with me. One was the idea that the, the world economy and therefore world markets are muddling through. 
there isn't an unusually high level of risk in any of the major markets at the moment, um, but the Asset Allocation Committee has, is running with a significantly lower of e equity weighting than was the case a few months ago. Nonetheless, there are areas which are uh, defensive and which will provide protection against adverse developments in, in traditional risk assets, and those areas are high-yield bonds, FX carry, and so on. Phil, thank you very much for such a broad-ranging tour of the world, and that ends our podcast for this week.